This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and today my guests are renowned writing team that are two towering pillars of Broadway and the best musical architects in the business. They have been recognized with the Tony Award, Drama Desk, Outer Critics Circle, Olivier Award, as well as nominations for Academy Awards, Golden Globes, and Grammys. They are the words and music behind shows like Ragtime, Anastasia, Once on This Island, Susical, Rocky, and their newest production, Knoxville. They are approaching their 40th year as collaborators who create memorable theatrical events for all of us. Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty, welcome to the podcast. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for having us. Now, we wasted half the time reading <laughs> your credits. So, I mean, that's not even the tip of the iceberg for what you guys have done. Well, you left out the Anastasia Ice show for one thing. <laughs> I'm only kidding. It was a film first, animated film, Broadway show, touring show, and now it's yes, an it, ice show. Yes. Well, it was at one point, and we went to see it, and it was hilarious. But now it's touring Europe. It's all over Europe and... But did you didn't States. have to write any new songs for the ice no, show? Not at all. Not at no, all. No, no. So that's kind of the Tom Sawyer creating yeah. method <laughs> where you get the other people to do the skating. That's right. <laughs> I know. Yeah, exactly. But uh, no, it, we, we actually have a, uh, there's a production that opened recently in Brazil. There's one coming to Mexico City. And there's a wonderful tour that's going through the States. So it's out there, which is great. It's wonderful. I did see Anastasia when it came through Austin. A very close friend of mine, who the two of you may know, was conducting the show. Uh, Larry Goldberg uh, was the conductor. Oh, yeah. He's great. Fant he speaks very highly of you. He was saying to me, oh, I love Journey to the Past. There were certain songs he loved conducting and playing and hearing night after night. And I was kind of amazed they've moved to the technology of all this big LED screen scenic elements. So, I mean, you can have moving trains and all kinds of other things going on. Exactly. That is probably glorious for the designers, right? Oh, it's wonderful. It's fantastic for the designers, but it also makes the show so tourable because, you know, you don't need huge trucks to carry video equipment. It's a whole new thing for touring, I think. And I think it's what gives our particular tour of Anastasia this very rich, luscious Broadway look. We saw it when it was up at in Albany and it's glorious you know it just you you don't miss anything that was on the stage in in Broadway so it's kind of exciting how big is the cast for that show I think maybe like 30 I was going to say way less than that I was going to say like 23 we might have lost a couple people on that road <laughs> <laughs> yeah lost somebody in Austin I understand but when you originally wrote Anastasia it was written as an animated film is that right that's correct yeah mm -hmm. okay so how long after that was it until you reapproached it for Broadway? Like 20 years. Almost exactly, because the, the film came out in 1997. And I think we opened on Broadway, was it 2017? 2017. Right? It, you know, what happened was we, we did this beautiful animated movie that was quite successful for 20th Century Fox and, you know, had a wonderful time writing the score. And over the years, we kept looking at each other and saying, this should be a musical. It should just be a Broadway musical. And we would get emails and people would be talking yeah. online. And we several times we went back to the people we knew at the time at 20th Century Fox to ask if we could possibly do it as a musical. And they had no 
department in place. They had no department for musicals at the time. They only were doing movies. So the answer kept being, well, we'd like to, but we can't. We don't know. We're not doing that. And then suddenly other film studios, Disney in particular, began to take their movies and turn them into stage musicals. And somebody said, hey, Anastasia would be a great idea. And so one way and another, with producers coming into the picture, it happened. And we were lucky that we got a chance to, you know, write the new score, taking our old songs and updating them and revamping them and adding a lot of new songs. So it's basically a new new score. Yeah. A lot of new stuff. Yeah. Well, it made a a beautiful transfer. And it does seem that things go from being films to being Broadway musicals easier than going from being a musical to being a film. It sure does. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) There's a history of of these going both ways, you know. We're we're actually um, not at liberty really to talk about this, but we're we're working on a film that's going to be a film adaptation of one of our musicals, which is exciting. Yeah. Oh, it's great to have a top secret thing now. We got a top secret thing, yeah. (laughs) And people now can go in, dive into your catalog, which is quite robust, and try to figure it out because there are That's so right. many. And I uh-huh. know it's not Rocky because that was a movie first. Correct. Although maybe you'll have one of those uh, producers events where it, be- it goes from being a movie to a Broadway show to a different movie. That's a possibility. You That's know? a possibility. I wouldn't I wouldn't put a whole lot of money on it, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> I, now, by the way, I did see that. I was in New York, and I know that it had big success in Germany, initially right that's that's right yeah we we actually premiered it in hamburg in the german language so that was quite different for us well that's interesting so tell me about that when you've written the words to all the music and then it was translated by someone else yeah it was translated by someone else we had wonderful german producers who were so excited about the show and they wanted to get the very best translator available so they had translator auditions and these german translators each did two or three song translations and then together with our german producers i got to vet them and tom Meehan as well who was our wonderful book writer on the project was vetting the german translation of the the libretto the the spoken words so somehow between us all we we came up with two wonderful german translators wolf Wolfgang Adenbrock, as he says it, and Ruth, uh, and I'm blanking out her last name, forgive me, Ruth. Uh, she was fantastic. I'll, I'll think of it maybe. Anyway, but he, she was Tom's translator. And we began a process where they translate it into German, and then they give you a back translation, which means that it goes back into English with the literal meaning of the German. Okay. So if, if I had written, the sky is overflowing, and I'm filled to the brim, they, they come back with... The clouds are opening and water is dumping down on your head. <laughs> and you say, hmm, could it be a little more poetic? There was one example that I remember that just made me laugh when I saw it. There's a wonderful song. I love this song anyway, called In the Ring. And it's an old boxer, Nicky, the trainer, reminiscing about his time as a young boxer. And there was one line that I was particularly proud of, which was they'd pit us like dogs in the boxcars at night and pay us in apples and booze. And the German translation came back. They worked us hard. That was it, right there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I said no. Loses a little texture, yes, and meaning. So it was always a back and forth between Wolfgang and me. I know I drove him crazy. In hindsight, I apologize on you know on this interview. Working with our translators was really an interesting experience and a wonderful one. And we're still in touch. I mean, he's a lovely guy, and and now I'm in touch with the Japanese translators, the Dutch the Spanish, 
and uh, the Brazilian. The Portuguese. And the Portuguese. <laughs> I mean, they're all out yeah. there and they're, they're wonderful poets in their own right. That translation becomes a big part of the crossword puzzle because with each language, if you're familiar with the famous story about the Nova, the car going to South America, Nova means no go. That's the translation. <laughs> That's unfortunate. They couldn't call it that wow. in South America. Somebody didn't do their homework, obviously, when they made the car. Yeah. Oops. It's interesting, too, because in German, there is no slang. So Rocky, you know, in the movie says, yo, Adrian, I ain't got no money, you know, or whatever. And in, and in German, he would say, oh, Adrian, I do not have any money. And he talked <laughs> like a college professor. So that was another hurdle. Yes. And in Spain, they apparently don't rhyme. And my ear always, I can always hear the rhymes in every language. I can hear the rhymes, but I never got my rhymes in Spanish, but oh well. Oh, wow. In Spanish or German? No, German rhymed perfectly. It rhymed perfectly. Yeah, very, very precise. A lot of consonants, though. Yeah, very hard sounds. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yes. There was one song we wrote called My Nose Ain't Broken, which was a big thing for Rocky. The one thing he had left, really, was he had never had a broken nose. And the hook of the song was My Nose Ain't Broken, five syllables. And the German came back, Meine Nase ist nicht gebrochen. And it wouldn't fit on the music that Stephen had written, which was perfect, you know. So we went through all, we even had a contest with the cast, anybody who can come up with something that worked. That is an interesting problem to have, uh, that when you have material now going all over the world, you've created global stories. They're universal on one level and very specific on another, right? That they're human stories. They're both very, very good at this, presenting material that's uh, accessible for folks, people wanting to dive on what I would call the foundational work or the structure. It's a blessing for royalties, but it does seem like it's not an easy handoff. We, we just had an absolutely wonderful time though, especially on Rocky because that was really the premiere. We were lucky, honestly, the, the actor who played Rocky uh, is an American actor named uh, Drew Serich, but also he had worked a lot in Germany. So he spoke exceptional German, which was so helpful to me, you know, because I wanted to make sure I was sort of adjusting and setting things correctly for that language. And I said, does this sound natural to you? How would you speak this? And he said, well, you know that that one word that you have on the very long note, he said, that's actually our word for the. <laughs> You know, so there, there were like many things that I would have to adjust and then I would have to keep a mental note, honestly, which things were adjusted because of language and translation issues and which were artistic changes because we knew we were bringing the show to Broadway. I, in a weird way, had to do it kind of three times. Well, let me ask another question in regard to what you're having to do scoring with the music, because this show, for anybody who didn't see it, was a, an amazing. I, I worried when I went to buy a ticket if it was going to be a musical. You know, I wasn't sure how this sort of male bravado film was going to take to this, but it was wonderful new adaptation, and there were great songs, but the staging in particularly... It's known that those last 20 minutes of the fight sequence and the staging of having the announcers above and having the ring come out into the middle of the audience and, you know, the slow motion fighting, you must have had to spend a lot of time timing out your additional music and transition. Everything, yes. Yeah, it, it was like really like scoring a picture. You'll appreciate this. In, in Brooklyn, we had a separate workshop for the production that was all about blood. It was a blood workshop, and then we had a separate <laughs> boxing workshop, which was really about 
how the choreography would look. We had professional boxers in Brooklyn doing these bouts. And then bit by bit, I knew that I wanted to score it like a picture. You know, it would be all underscored. It was wild because it was really like scoring a a motion picture, but in real time with real people there. And uh, I knew that vocals were somehow going to be used in, in interfacing with that. We didn't have money for boxers and singers. So we had to be super creative. All of our assistants, all of our p- people that w- that worked behind the scenes, we hired people, and they could only get the job if they could sight read. <laughs> so, oh wow! Okay. So, so we had all of these production assistants, many of whom were composers, actually. You know, young composers from NYU. And uh, at one point, I did a head count, and I think we had seven composers in there, and they could all sight read. So I could say, "Here, sing this bit." Oh, that didn't work. Let's try this. And it was very fluid, and nobody honestly knew how it was going to work. And that's what the fun of it was, because we were kind of doing this new thing that hadn't been done, and it was wild and and terrific fun at the same time right so rather than putting out a call for angry singers or theatrical boxers that's right i know but isn't that what we do in theater right we're all problem solvers and sometimes it's the budget and sometimes it's the weather and sometimes it's a time constraint but the two of you working very specifically theatrically because that's really your specialty is that you're often working with a director who says to you I got to cover this piece of scenery coming up. Correct. That's what I think I love the most about theater in a way is just solving every little square inch of problem that comes up, you know, and there's some way to usually solve it lyrically or musically. It's such a fluid process and we're never done till we're done. And then even when we're done, we're not done. Even when the show opens, we, we redo it, you know, like Rocky, we, we have a much more streamlined version of it now than ran on Broadway. And we just saw it in Philadelphia and it works great. It was actually stunning in the city of Philadelphia. We made adjustments in not only in terms of dance music and stuff, but some of the local references in the show to Philly. We changed them for it specifically for this production. And we're always solving these problems. I just remembered one other thing from the German production, which is the German language is really long. The words can be like three blocks long, many more syllables and all that. And so we had done a very careful timing of the music to the scenes, to the book scenes and to the the little interstitial scenes that come within songs. And we got to Germany and we had this gigantic table read with probably 50 or 60 people around this giant square table. And the cast was there and most of them knew the songs already. And we read through it in German and sang through it in German. And at the end of the reading, it ran about three and a half hours because of the length of the German language. And Stephen's head went into his hands. I was losing my mind. I was like going crazy. Yes. Right. And that's with no intermission. No intermission. He just lost the will to live at that moment. And then we started cutting and figuring out with the translators. That's the glory of theater. You know, is it such a living art form? Every night it can be a little different. Every night you can see something you want to fix. Even after the show is opened, you you know, there are things that you can adjust, that you can change, that, you, you know, you're always aiming for perfection and maybe never quite getting there, but, you know, as close as we can in, uh, in this life. Well, that, that, that's sort of the, the joy of it, though. You know, the, the idea that we're mortals trying to create something of perfection, you know, so I, I actually find that very touching. It's wonderful. And it's, and it's the most, I think, collaborative art form that we have. It's not done just by one person. It's done by a group of people in real time. And, you know, you're living and breathing and spending a lot of hours with these folks. So it's uh, it's very fun for me. I, I, we, we both have a, we love it. 
It's great. And speaking of collaboration, you came to me by way of one of your collaborators, Susan Stroman, that you know is Stro. Yes. Uh, we had her on this podcast, but she said it would be great for us to talk. And I knew that you had been working with her on the Little Dancer Project, which is a fantastic new original piece of work. She talked about how great the collaboration with you. She adores you both. And what a beautiful work that you had created together there. So uh, she sent the message, fingers crossed for the fall of 2023. That's a little insider scoop. That is right. Oh, I know. <laughs> We have everything crossed, you know, I'll take fall of 24 too. <laughs> I don't care, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful show and we do, we can't wait to, to bring it to Broadway and, you know, share it with a larger audience. And you know what was wonderful about that particular show? It sort of became a real meeting of creative minds because it's the first show I think that we've ever written where the director was on from day one because we knew it was going to be such a dance-heavy show. I'll just tell you quickly what the show is about for all of you people watching who want to come and see it when it actually gets to Broadway. Take us from the setting, that lush world of the Paris Opera Ballet. Sure. Well, the, the show is set in the lush world of the Paris Opera Ballet <laughs> in the late 1800s. And it centers on a young, poverty-stricken ballerina who crosses paths with the famous impressionist artist Edgar Degas. And for some reason, which will become evident when you see our show, he takes notice of her. Uh, actually, she picks his pocket. So he chases her down. and Spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. And he says, you're going to pose for me to pay me back for what you took. Mm. Oh, that's an interesting relationship. And in the course of their relationship, they're very feisty opponents, but they also begin to care about one another in a sort of a father and daughterly way. And by the end of it, he creates a famous sculpture that I think everybody listening to this will be familiar with. It's the Little Dancer, aged 14 sculpture that resides at the Metropolitan Museum and at the National Gallery in Washington. And there are models of it that have been sculpted from the original cast all over the world. So it's based on the real girl who modeled for that sculpture. And it's made from, you know, usually you'll see it in bronze, but she's wearing a real tutu and real shoes. And she has a real ribbon in her hair and her hands are behind her back. And she's this feisty, raggedy little girl. And we ended up with Tyler Peck, who is one of the greatest ballerinas in America. She's a star dancer at New York City Ballet, and she plays the lead. Terrence Mann, who everybody will be familiar with from the original company of Cats and everything else that he's done along the way. He's a brilliant actor and singer, and together their chemistry and their feisty, brilliant relationship is as clear as a bell. It's so much fun. We did the show at the Kennedy Center and sold out, and then it went to Seattle Fifth Avenue Theater and sold out. And we are now bringing it the, the sets, the costumes, everything's, you know, on the trucks waiting to come to Broadway. So it'll be on its way, we think, pretty soon. Yeah. I know the pandemic stepped in and caused a little bit of a slow up in that journey, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. But Lynn, you wrote the original book here and the two mm -hmm. of you did the score and it Correct. is uh, directed and choreographed by Susan Stroman. And was it her original idea that she came to you with? We had it at the same time, apparently, because I saw it at the Clark Institute up in upstate Berkshire area at that museum. I said to my husband, this would make a musical. And I called Stephen. I said, this would make a musical. We set a meeting with Susan Stroman, who happens also to be a neighbor of mine, as well as a very old friend. And we went over to see her. 
and we sat down and we said, we have an idea, we might be of interest to you. It's Degas' little dancer, and her eyebrows flew up, and she went, I was just seeing that, and I was thinking this would be a musical. So right from day one, we were all on the same path going forward. And I, I think what's wonderful about the show is it's a real collaboration of dance and musical theater and fine art. And they all come together. You know, Stroh has created this 10-minute ballet. Stephen has written ballet music for her. I've created these characters and this story that is not a, the real story, but uses elements of the real girl's life, lots of elements and, and fact. So it's a, a melding of fact and fiction and dance and music and art, and it's it's extraordinary. We love it so much. Yeah, what a tremendous showcase of all of your talents. It's almost a dream team where everybody's got their specialty and can really shine, right? So yeah, absolutely. I know, Stephen, you're quite famous for your music and underneath all the emotion and all the swelling and the epicness, that was one of the things that Larry Goldberg was like going on and on complimenting your work. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Let me go back to one thing that Lynn just said. She said, my husband, just so that the listener knows that you are not a married couple, and then she said- No. Although we were, we're wearing identical outfits today, yet again. Always. Yes, <laughs> but 40 years together does constitute a working couple. It's kind of like being ice dancers, but let's say not in the German production of Anastasia. But you are interlocked in your creative process. So how many days a week are you working together? It varies and it changes. And, you know, it's the, the thing to keep in mind is uh, some shows write themselves very quickly. And one of our shows, we were actually writing it for 13 years. Yeah, in between other things. I mean, it wasn't entirely 13 years of that one show. But from the topic sentence to the final period, it was 13 years, yeah. Musical theater is the longest, slowest turning ship in the ocean, from creation to production. Correct. The fundraising, the development, and it's a very expensive venture to go on. It's a luxury that you can be on a speedboat while that's happening on one project and moving to another. That's right. I mean, we're pretty fast writers. We usually are quick, but it, you're right. It is from inception to when the thing actually gets on a stage. There's a, there are so many factors. You know, the writing in a certain weird way is the least of it. Although that one 13-year project, it was, it was the most of it. I know. Yeah, it's just the problem solving, you know, and we used to work at almost every single day together in the same room. And little by little, as technology began to rear its head, like I used to dictate lyrics onto Stephen's old answering machine. I'd do dramatic readings. <laughs> I know. It, it was such a treat to get these, these <laughs> very dramatic readings of lyrics. And then he'd have to write it down. You know, he'd be transcribing. And then it, we discovered the fax machine. And a, a lot of ragtime was done on via faxes because I'd fax, you know, the, a lyric to Back to Before or something to him. And he would get it that way. And then, of course, we started getting into MP3s and MP4s and internet email and, you know, all of that stuff. So we don't get together every single day anymore but i would say we're in touch all the time all the time and yeah abso absolutely and we're about to start totally the project and i think we'll be back in the room quite a lot together once that kicks yeah. up its uh, heels yeah would you mind describing the joy of creating something new together yeah you know you know everybody seems to think that there's like one way of doing this and the thing that's i think so exciting is that there is this element of mystery you know, because if, if somebody would say, well, how do you write music? It's like, I honestly couldn't tell you. It's almost like being a detective, you know, and you sort of have to find your way into the piece. You know, so we tend to talk 
for hours and days and weeks about what the scene is about, who the character is, how do they change within this scene and within the arc of the show. I personally try to find the emotional center for the character or the moment. And Lynn loves music first, if I can do that. The last show that we had done earlier this year, it's called Knoxville. It's a show that we had done at the Oslo Rep Theater in Sarasota, based on James Agee's novel, A Death in the Family. There was something about that show that for whatever reason, it, a lot of it wanted to be music first. It was really interesting to, to do that, you know, where I would throw a theme or a, a partially written piece of material, not necessarily a complete song, but then we start throwing it back and forth. And then as you develop the piece, you start actually writing for particular actors. And that really in, informs the process. And it's also how I hear it. Because I'm not just hearing you know, a character, I'm hearing this particular actor as the character. It makes it really come alive and it's fun. You know, it's funny, I read something about Knoxville and it talked about it being a masterclass in craft and a masterclass in character because it's kind of a beautiful, bittersweet score that encompasses big, heady themes and small, deeply human moments, which is different than song storytelling. Right, that's right. If anybody ever wants to read the book, Death in the Family, I always suggest that people, if they've seen the show, it's good to see, to read the book afterwards because then they can see what we did and how we, how we responded to the underlying material. You know, in that case, there was so much beautiful poetic language in the novel that I thought, oh my gosh, this could be song material so easily. And Stephen responded musically to it. And there was one scene in particular, I kept finding the scenes, that was sort of my job at the beginning, was to say, what about this scene where he's just found out that his father is, is having heart issues and he's got to get up in the middle of the night, get dressed, get in the car, and drive through the night to his ill father. And what is he feeling at that moment? And when you read that passage in the novel, the night is outside, it's pushing against the window, it's calling him out, he sort of doesn't want to leave his warm bed and his wife, and but he's got to go, and it's this push and pull feeling in the heart of this man who has a, a sort of a sense of wanderlust anyway. And I said that to Stephen, and, and Stephen just put his hands on the keys and went, dun, 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 dun. and he just came up with this little theme, and I went, oh, well, there we have it. He wrote the whole thing, and I said it like in a day. And I love that. It's it's called Outside Your Window. I, and I think once we wrote that song, we said, ah, now we know what the show is. You know, there there has to be that yeah. moment that tells you as the writer, this is who I am and this is what I want to be. And it's the show talking to you. And after we had written that one song, it was super exciting. And, and then we knew how to write the rest of, of the show. Yeah, well, that's interesting. It's a bit of a superpower that you have there to translate. That's, <laughs> when you're able to think of moments, emotional moments and recreate them, somebody said when you write, you're able to taste life twice in the moment and then in retrospect, and you're able to translate that then to an auditory experience where there's a third experience for the audience when it accompanies the actors. So that's a very unique skill set, I would say. Yeah, it's like this It's like this big. I'm holding my forefinger <laughs> and my thumb like an inch apart. It's a very particular, very strange little skill that we both have, I think. You were not always partners. You became partners through a, a BMI writing workshop, but you both had a similar skill set Although, uh, Lynn, you had a, a big strength in words and Stephen in music, right? But you both still understood the composition of song and pulling things together. Well, I, I will just add to that, Pat, that 
um, Stephen was writing his own lyrics when I met him, and he's a very good okay. lyricist, and I was writing my own songs, and I had done a lot of stuff for television, you know, Schoolhouse Rock, and Captain Kangaroo, God help me, and you know, all these <laughs> many, many television. By the way, I'm a big Schoolhouse Rock fan, so. I taught you everything you know. <laughs> oh, you know what's really sad? I'll just give a little shout out to the man who basically gave me my first songwriting career, just passed away, George Newell. And I'm so sorry that he's gone, but he was the guy, I was a secretary. And I would bring my guitar to work and play songs on my lunch hours because that I would write, you know, little songs. And one day this gentleman stopped by my cubicle and he said, hey, honey, would you like to write a song for Schoolhouse Rock? Would you like to give it a try? And that was the beginning of my professional songwriting career. So a big shout out to George Newell, who was one of the creators of Schoolhouse Rock and just a wonderful man. And what was that first Schoolhouse Rock song? Do you remember? It was the preamble. Oh. I can't really say I wrote the lyrics exactly. <laughs> but, I... but you adapted it brilliantly. Yes, that is an extraordinary <laughs> adaptation. And let's say you had some decent uh, posthumous collaborators. Yes, for sure. They were all brilliant. And they're all gone now, except for me. Oh, my God. So <laughs> The last of the preamble. <laughs> <laughs> last man standing, yeah. Oh, gosh. Now, I don't remember who said this, but I read something that said a good composition is like a suspension bridge that each line adds strength and takes none away. Honestly, I, I think of music as architecture because it's not just like you're writing the tune, it's the shape of the tune and how does this melody relate to something later in the score. And, and one of the things I love about music is that you can connect ideas so well through music. Towards the top of Ragtime, there's that scene where the character of Mother is saying goodbye to her husband who's going off on an expedition. She's at a fixed point. He's going into New York Harbor. And at the same time, an immigrant man is coming into New York Harbor. And there's something about these three lives and connecting them with the music, because not to spoil things, but in, in act two, these three characters really come together in a very profound way. By setting them up in this musical number called Journey On towards the beginning of Ragtime, it sets the audience in their minds to connect those characters. So in fact, even though they're in completely different locales, by having them sing together, the audience somehow connects them. It's a great thing that music does, and it's exciting. It is pretty magical, though, how you can create cinematic moments in, in a stage, as you described with the Rocky thing. You know, there was slow motion fighting and all of that, and that is an extraordinary way to take the language of film that we're used to, but to do it live in a dramatic way. That's one of the things about modern theater is that nobody sits still for scene changes very easily anymore. And, you know, when there is a transition, you better darn well have some drama happening because our attention spans have speeded up so much. And what we do, just back to that quote about a bridge, you know, a song taking you somewhere and it takes the audience to the next scene or it takes the audience to the next emotional state of the character or whatever, wherever it's taking you, it better take you somewhere. It can't just stand there and declaim. Anyway, I just wanted to add that to your quote about bridges because it's not only emotional forward motion, but it's plot motion. I quite often find myself the sort of the beast of burden for exposition. It's like, well, we've just been here and now we have to go there and somehow I'm going to do it gracefully in these lyrics or kill myself, you know. So I do a lot of that and I, I've learned to do it and be aware of it, you know, how to how to do it. Well, that's the tricky thing about the book, right? The listener here may not know that the book is, we're not referring to a translated book, but that's the part of the musical that is essentially the dialogue and the storytelling that is not in song for the most part. Or it, it's inclusive, I guess, but 
it's gotten over the last, I'd say, maybe 15, 20 years where there's much more ebbing and flowing from a song to a bit of dialogue back to the song. It's more cinematic is what it is because it just keeps moving. We don't sit still very much anymore for long book scenes and then a song and then a long That's book right. scene and then a song. Contemporary songwriters will know enough about the craft to say, well, we have a five page scene here and we can't nobody's going to sit still so we're going to musicalize into it and out of it and somewhere in the middle of it and that gives you this sort of woven texture that we're all used to doing and, and hearing nowadays I think you know and that's one of the junior you know like young writers will always give you scripts and they'll say here's my new musical and you read it and they're five page book scenes and then somebody sings a little song and then another five page book scene and that's so old school in a in the weirdest way and it's almost like if i were to make an analogy there used to be kids books that would have pages of writing and then a picture and one or the other was good and now it does require the book writer does have to be a craftsman a person that can really connect the dots and make it seamless and not get all clunky and find the comedy the humor and things in translating as you said a scene change or something else because it's a it's quite a recipe to get it right it is indeed i'm still experimenting with that recipe as they say <laughs> you know a little a little more olive oil maybe i don't know but it's interesting because lynn and and pat you both brought up the idea of cinematic language in crafting the music you know i usually work with an orchestrator who is basically somebody that takes my piano and vocal score and translates it to uh the instruments of the orchestra and almost never do we talk about what instruments you know we decide sort of what the overall palette might be you know in terms of the the content but we always talk in cinematic terms like I would say, okay, now this is a close-up. If this were a film, we would be irising down on this one human being. And now we're going into full frame. And we would always talk about what we were seeing and how things would, would, would change. We'd go from the intimate to the larger, as opposed to, oh, yeah, put three violins here. We would always talk in visual language, which was a great way to navigate You know what, what we're hearing as well as what we're seeing. It leaves also room for an interpretation. Yeah. A good director in film or in television, they never tell the actor what to say or how to right. say it, and they don't give them an impression. They say something simple like, convince me this. It could be just a sales scene, and they could say, I need you to seduce that woman. Mm. And so the words all change once they give them an intention underneath. That's right. And, and also the music that's under a scene. You know, the scene could be about, I need to borrow a pencil from you. But the underlying music can tell you, uh-oh, th there's something else going on here. There's like a bomb under the table, or there's tension here, or these characters are becoming attracted to one another, even though they're not saying a word about that. And there's something about the use of music for subtext, which is really, really interesting to experiment with. Yeah, I can tell you what, it changes storytelling immensely. Of course. Because I, I've seen images after images put to different music, and you go, oh, this is a travesty, or this is a birthday party. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. or a ghost story, or whatever, yeah. Yeah, you have Susical the Musical, which is something that is one of the most produced shows in America over time because it's accessible and it's people kind of understand what it's intended to be. And he was a very lyrical writer, but did anything change? Like when there was a spotlight shined on the books for some scrutiny, did that change the schools or the theaters interest in doing it? Or has it been fluid throughout? 
Are you talking about the recent kerfuffle over a couple of politically incorrect characters in Dr. Seuss? Yeah, I just wonder if it impacted your musical in any way. Not in the slightest, because we didn't have those characters in our musical anyway. Sure. But if we had, I think we probably would have left them or would have somehow adjusted a line of dialogue or a lyric or something to, you know, make them acceptable. But that that has not affected the show. And I think the reason is because the show is so inclusive and is so liberal in, at heart and is so loving and caring about children and about people and about the environment. And it's anti-war. It's, it's sort of all the things that he believed in that we happen to believe in too. So it was yeah. a wonderful meeting of the minds. It's so funny. I was looking through old photographs today to try and find one particular photograph. And I came up with a picture of myself. I was probably six wearing a little black and white striped shirt such as one I own today <laughs> and I'm look I'm reading a Dr. Seuss book very studiously and then you can see the oh, illustration wow. in the photograph it's a little and I was thinking oh my gosh I should put this on the wall this is so prophetic you know that I would have written Seussical yeah I've always loved those books and when we were first asked to make the Seuss canon into a musical, there are so many books, there are like 40 something books. And, and we had to kind of sort through them and find what was the core story and then who were the main characters and how does the rest of it all fit in. And it was great fun. And we sat down and we just read them out loud to each other. Yeah, that's the pleasure is just the sound of it, the sound of the language. It's really about reading to one another and, and just hearing the sound as opposed to reading a book to yourself. Completely different experience. It's, it's interesting because where the show ended up, it's very similar to where we started. We wound up casting the very first reading uh, with friends of ours. And it was basically like Mickey and Judy in a barn doing a show, you know, and it was like very, oh, right, very right. simple and playful. And that the purity of that experience was really what the show always wanted to be. On its long, crazy ride to Broadway and beyond, the physical production somehow had gotten out of control and, you know, was quite large and oddly literal and not a good way. And I, I think at the beginning, we were asking our little audience of 20 or however many people saw that first reading, basically to fill in the blanks with your imagination. And I think that that's really what the show wanted to be. It has a, a wonderful happy ending because we were able to, after the debacle of Broadway, we were able to reclaim the show do a little more rewriting and focusing. And we've seen it done by so many groups all over the all, all over the world. Now it's a wonderful show. It had its right. travail, for sure. But we remain friends, which was a good sign, you know, through it yeah. all. We'd be holding hands in Boston and sobbing. Yes. You know? I said to Lynn, this experience <laughs> is so intense when we were out of town. I said, either this is going to make us so strong or it's going to rip us apart. I said, but there's no way we can go through this without having something change. Lucky for us, I think it was such an intense experience, but it coming out the other end of it, it sort of made you feel like a superhero because you're thinking about what, what's the worst thing that could happen? And it happens. you know. <laughs> yeah. There was a director named Alec Berg and he was tasked with making the movie out of the cat in the hat. Ah. And I interviewed him for the Austin Film Festival. And I said, you know, cat in hat the movie. Why? Just to sort of pimp him around. <laughs> And he said, listen, you do not set out to make the worst movie ever made. That is not your goal. He says, you're trying honestly. But he was dealing in the Cat in the Hat book with a book that had a total of 39 words in it yes. that were repeated yeah. phrases and all those kinds of things. But this is sort of tipping back to your Broadway experience. 
you now have Hollywood money and production, and we're going to put Mike Myers in this part, and we want an adult audience, and we want a kid audience, and we want this. And they're trying to be all things for all people. Bingo. That's it. Yep. He said, Mike Myers looked good in this costume. Yes, he has a sense of humor, but his humor was not right for kids at all. And the Cat in the Hat book is not right for adults at all. He's like, we made every possible mistake in assembling this Frankenstein monster um, because we had money to do that. Right. Well, our show was at its best with no money, where they had a little banner on a ribbon that said, Mr. Mayor, Mrs. Mayor, the Cat in the Hat had a hat. Gertrude McFuzz hat was wearing a dance belt with a feather stuck into it for a one feather tail. There was a ladder with an inner tube on the top of it that was a nest in a tree. And that was the best that it ever was. And now that's kind of how it gets produced by schools now. They do it with such simple imaginative things. They use mittens and for autumn leaves. And, you know, you can't even figure out what they're doing. It's so adorable. And it has survived the glitz and glamour and brouhaha of Broadway, and it has survived a very, very difficult, traumatic, out-of-town experience where we were just clinging to the tail of the horse and saying, you know, keep going. It was quite an experience. Speaking of that process, right, and learning, you know, to sort of respect the creative process and the changes, when you're now dealing with other people, expectations and money and, you know, trying to get a return on their investment, and you have each other, which I think is fantastic, but... How do you deal with construction criticism or the diplomacy of of receiving notes from others? That's easy. There are two answers. The first answer is talk to the director. (laughs) That's the first answer because everything should filter, filter through the director. But if that doesn't work and they catch you in the back of the theater and start whispering in your ear, you say, that is a fantastic idea. Let me think about that. And then you go away and you do whatever it is that you want to do. But present the new idea, you say, we wouldn't have come up with this without your suggestion. And it'll be totally different. It'll be totally what you want to do, but they think they thought of it. And that's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's different because in the theater, it's a writer's medium. You get to drive the car, where as in film, you know, you're just like a hired gun and you're one of the team. We're lucky that we get to develop the book and the score through a series of readings usually and and a workshop. And uh, yeah, but you're, you're definitely going to get everybody's opinion about what it is that you do. And you just have to find the way to navigate that. It's, it's going to be everybody. Somebody once said, if the good idea comes from your dentist and it's a good idea, it doesn't matter. So, you know, we're always open if we're in trouble or we can't think of something. If somebody says something that rings a bell, that's great. You know, and you thank them and, and you use their idea because they've offered it. But, you know, a lot of the time, everybody thinks they know. And they may be saying, she needs a different dress, when in fact, it's something entirely different. So you do learn those, how to deal with the feedback. I was just thinking that in your business versus other businesses, Broadway has a lot of money investors that are called producers. They're not the creative producer, or they're not specifically the line producer in charge of the budget, or they're somebody who, by making a donation of a certain level, Mm -hmm. they're investors, they become a producer, right? This is great joy for them to bring things to life and be a part of the party and go to the opening night. But if they would recognize you or say something or want to contribute, it would feel like you have a lot more godmothers and godfathers in this race than most businesses. If you have a good lead producer, and that is the Uber producer over all of those investors and investor groups and, you know, the people who are in quotes producers because they've raised half a million dollars or whatever. But if you have a good lead producer, the lead producer will say to them right at the beginning, all of your comments have to come to me. 
and then he will filter all those comments oh, to good. the director. That's how it should work. Now, does it always, if you're at a dinner with these people and they're sitting next to you, they may say, you know, I had a thought for you in act two. And then you go to plan two, which is what a good idea. Let me think right, about great. that. Yes. I say, I say to young writers, just put that on your refrigerator. Yes, let me think about that. What I used to do in the movie business when I was dealing with a studio, they would have so many notes on things. And sometimes you go, mm, that's just their own nostalgic view of what summer camp is. Mine's different, right? Like, it's just everybody's got a different point of view. But when I was young, I was sort of, you know, like always slightly defensive to certain notes. And then I started going, no, oh, give the notes. Give us any, many notes. And, and what's funny is I would say at the end of the meeting, will you do me a favor? Will you distill those into the most salient notes and send them over and we'll address them? While they're doing that, they're reading the contradictions in their notes. They're like, oh, number two and number 17 are opposite. Well, let's scratch those two, right? So you get usually get a, a little bit of a reduced thing when they have to not spitball it. When they have to write it down, they right. take a little That's bit right. more time. That's right. Absolutely true. And then uh, we do the same thing. We ignore the notes. Yeah, but you say thank you. <laughs> yeah, most interesting note I got, I, I was writing with a guy named Matt Goldman, and we were writing a movie, and we're fast writers as well. And we pride ourselves in coming up with solutions, saying there's not a better one, write it, get it going. And we turned in a draft quickly to some movie company, Columbia TriStar, I believe. And they said, you wrote it too fast. And we go, is it good or not good? Like, ah. is the story working? Do you like the dialogue? He just wrote it too fast. So they sent us off to write another draft, which we wrote in 10 days. And we didn't turn it in for three months. We went That's skiing. Right. Like, is that really the criteria for them? Is that we wait till the spring? Right. Absolutely. I've learned that lesson. Stephen taught me that about answering emails because I am always, I got to answer them right away because it's impolite to, and they'll move down and I'll lose them. And, and he's like, I'm not answering that for three days. Yeah, and I'm like, he's exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and well, you, you know, it's interesting because when, when we were working on Ragtime, we were working with a wonderful director, Frank Galati, who, who actually, we just worked with on Knoxville and he, he had done a lot of opera and he had done revivals of previously existing musicals, but he had never directed an original musical. And so the idea that there would, there would be new songs coming in and going away, he, he said, did you really write that today? He kept thinking we had these in our side pockets. And we were like, like, right. like a sheath of songs that we were trying to like dole out like every couple of days. And I said, yeah. I said, we talked about the, the moment that we discussed and we realized that Brian Stokes and Audra McDonald needed another number. And, you know, it took us a day of thinking and then with that number, uh, the, the writing was quite fast. Like we probably wrote that song in maybe 30 minutes, but we thought about it for like nine hours. You know? yeah. But also, you know, what is necessary. Like sometimes when you know what has to be said, what feelings are we trying to present or how are we trying to bring forward this dream or this moment or this necessity? Sometimes it takes a long time to figure out the clarity of why a song belongs in this at all in the beginning when you're stacking up songs I, i've always been fascinated by the take it to broadway where they're out of town and they're like we're going to broadway next week this opening song stinks we got to get rid of it i guess gershwin writing the song on the train where the rhythm of the train dictated a little bit of the 
urgency. Right. That's actually, well, it's, it's a little bit different, but Dr. Seuss, you know how he, he apparently was on a cruise with his wife and they had a, a cabin that was too close to the ship's engine and it was going to pocket a pocket a pocket a pocket and that's why I found it on Mulberry Street and that dictated the rhythm for the whole rest of his life of that is hilarious yeah, yeah the metronome of the ship <laughs> you know you never know where a good idea will come from so <laughs> you have multiple things on your plate ahead I know you've got things running right now a man of no importance and there's a few things that are in the hopper and then there's the secret thing that we're going to be trying to figure out that Stephen mentioned <laughs> earlier. But are people trying to get in your queue for some other work at all times? Is that kind of the process? Well, we, we get a lot of ideas presented to us pretty much all the time. That's right. I think that that's one of the things that it doesn't occur to a lot of people that sometimes uh, starting a new project has to do with what you just completed, you know, because I, I know uh, after we had done Ragtime, which was a very dramatic, intense show, we were feeling like we wanted to do something that was more lighthearted, a comedy. So that sort of begat Susical. And then A Man of No Importance, which you just brought up. The idea for that came from Terrence McNally, who had written the script for Ragtime. And he, he wanted to do something new with us. And we loved the experience and wanted to work with him again. And just the idea that the original Ragtime had 52 actors on the stage. And he said, well, we can't do anything bigger than that. So let's do something in an extreme Focus, yeah. So we did a very uh, intimate uh, chamber piece. He, we were just sort of throwing rough musical ideas around, and I thought it might be interesting to to do something Irish because there were Irish characters in Ragtime who wound up being pretty much the villains of the piece. But we cut almost all of the score, and my parents, I think, were upset. They're like, you know, why don't you have the Irish singing in this show? So maybe that was a, a, a nod to my Irish Catholic folks. I'll just add my two little cents, which is, if you haven't noticed, almost every show we've done is very, very diametrically opposed to all the other shows we've done. We've done everything from Caribbean fairy tales to Dr. Seuss to Ragtime, which is a big social commentary, to A Man of No Importance, which is delicate, to, to The Glorious Ones, which is 15th century Italy, to every show takes us to a new place and a new form of music and a new sound and a new, new characters and hopefully universal themes in each one. But we love those different challenges, and that's why so many of the shows that we're presented with by producers or whoever are sort of too close to what we've already done. We've already done it. Just like, you know, Sheldon Harnick already did Fiddler on the Roof. I don't think he would want to do another. Yeah. In a way, they want to be derivative of your own work as Correct. kind of an insurance policy for them. Correct. That we they know we can that. So, you know, we're, we're always looking for ideas. We're always open to ideas. And, you know, I do a lot of reading and listening and so does Stephen. And, we, you know, they, they occur. But as we get older, I think it gets harder and harder not to duplicate what you've already done. So that's something else to consider. And the other thing, too, is that a lot of our early work or all of our work really, keeps generating new work, whether we like it or not. This coming year, there's going to be a Ragtime reunion concert. There's going to be a Boston Pops concert with a, con a new concert version of Ragtime. There's going to be a big production of Once on this Island in Regent's Park, London. Anastasia is going to all these different countries, and there's always something to do related to those new versions of the work. There's always something to approve or do or provide. So, you know, life gets busier and busier the more you write, we've, we're discovering. If you're lucky, if you're lucky, you know. But I did hear that that Once on this Island production is going to be an open-air theater yes, production, correct. which is, will be really interesting, Fabulous. right? I, I think I saw it in, uh, 
in New York, and I can't remember which theater was it in the round. So you saw it in 218, Circle in the Square, yeah. Right. I didn't know anything about it, but was sent to see it, and it was a fantastic production, and all of the sand and all of the being able to have the action in the center, like that really made sense. It was an island. And so many times in the round, I think, what in the world is this idea yeah. of doing this piece of theater in the round? Everybody's constantly having to spin around, whatever. But it worked so well there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was really artfully staged and it was so great. And it was quite different than your other musicals. So yeah. I was really thoroughly surprised by it. Yeah. Yeah. We they did they did ragtime at Regent's Park, which is the open air park in, in London where they do theaters kind of like their Delacorte. That was interesting too. It was an outdoor production. It was extraordinarily odd and modern. It had uh, rubble and out of, you know, like a plane had just crashed through a big Obama poster, which was kind of burnt. And it was this futuristic, strange version of ragtime that kind of worked wonderfully because out of the rubble came these people who discover an old Victrola, they discover an old table, and suddenly the world was created it was it was wonderful so all of those kinds of new lives for old shows is so exciting and you know it just makes you want to go do it do whatever you want to do and we'll come see it that's what's so exciting is because there's never a final cut for anything ever and i think it's one of the things that we love about it and that i think audiences that come to our shows love about it is that it's this living breathing organism and whatever happens to you in that day in your daily life, you bring it with you to the theater and somehow every performance is fresh and it's different. It's interesting to see the shows play in different times. You know, like Ragtime in 1998 is very different from when you see the show done in this year. You know, just the politics and how it's framed in the, in the context. Why, why would you go to see like Hamlet? It's because of the different ideas, the different actors, the different approach and with musicals, if you're lucky enough, you know, you begin to be revived. So, you know, there are new productions of older work that allow for you to, to re-examine and try new things. So our Men of No Importance uh, that, that we, we have downtown is super different from what we did at Lincoln Center uh, 20 years ago. So it, it was great. Yeah. Felt like a new show. I like your observation there that it is a living, breathing organism and it is a child that we're always raising. Yes. Right. And so sometimes, you know, we want to give it a haircut. The beauty <laughs> of you having a lot of work ahead is that you're not fixating on one thing. Some people write one piece and they stay on that piece all of their life. And I feel like there's sometimes you have to let the child go off to school <laughs> and learn a few things on its own and then when you look at it reflectively, you go, oh, I think we can make an improvement. Right, I always wanted to fix that one line. It has always driven me crazy. Or like in Man of No Importance, we worked with John Doyle, the great John Doyle, who's known for his sparsity of what you see on the stage. It's like whatever isn't necessary goes. And that goes for scenery, that goes for lines of dialogue, that goes for songs, etc. And in this production, he not only made a lot of tiny surgical cuts in Terrence's book with Terrence's husband Tom's permission and our permission but just surgical cuts and then he got it down to a length where he said I wonder if we could try it without an intermission and we said sure as long as we can reinstate it if we don't like it and he said absolutely so we tried it without an intermission it was fantastic and then it became quite apparent 
to both of us that there was one song in Act Two that wasn't necessary in the John Doyle School of Unnecessary. It not only wasn't necessary, but it wasn't quite as good as the rest of the material. And it became so obvious when we didn't have an intermission, the story just kind of goes on this incredibly dramatic arc. And we cut one song. And so there's this whole now suddenly new version of A Man of No Importance running downtown. It's very successful. And we love it because we're able to take that new look at it. Yeah, and I think that's a beautiful and mature moment when you can take an intermission out of a show where it's a story of a life and you go, why are we breaking for people to go get a drink and come back and then we have to reboot this guy's life? That's right. That's right. And I think it's really exciting for the audiences because uh, our leading man is Jim Parsons. So the minute Jim enters the stage, he is there for nearly two hours and he never leaves. He only leaves like, I think twice in the entire evening. And he is front and center. And there's something about seeing uh, a terrific actor in real time doing their craft with, with like literally nothing to lean against, you know? It's, it's exciting. And I think the audiences totally dig that. And, and also a lot of these actors play their own instruments in this production. We have three champion quality Irish fiddlers. And whenever they're doing their fiddler thing and coming right at the audience. And, and also, frankly, we've forgotten what unmiked music sounds like. They don't uh, mic the strings, they don't mic the winds, and it, and it, and it feels really vital and, and real, and, and it's right there, two feet away from you. And just a shout out to those actor players that we have, a little shout out, they're not only great players, they're amazing actors, they're amazing singers, and they're hilarious. So, you know, uh, we just lucked out with these, these folks in our show. Well, we're, there's a lot of talent in the world, and now that we're sort of over the pandemic, I think we're rediscovering some and we're getting a chance to showcase folks. The two of you put a lot of actors to work and I'm uh, certainly, they're grateful to you for that. Actors, singers, dancers and the like. There's so much to learn about you that we cannot cover today, but I will send folks to your aaronsandflaherty.com, which is a very robust uh, website with great samples of your songs and, and all the words and music that you guys are responsible for. Uh, my pleasure to talk to you. I did on that website, I stumbled across a little uh, ditty that was like a 90 seconds called Nice, How Lucky We Are. And is, is that something you did at a, an awards thing or a presentation? We celebrated our own 30th anniversary of writing together by doing six shows at 54 Below, which is a New York oh, yeah. a nightclub that, you know, specializes in theater nightclub stuff. And we did six shows. We got, I believe, 18 or 19 of the actors who've been in our Broadway shows and our off all our shows. And they all showed up for us. We did six very different shows. Each show had a different assortment of songs and singers. And it was recorded. Um, and there were little tiny bits where Stephen said, you have to sing something, Lynn. So Lynn sings in German on this recording. She sings one of the Rocky songs in German. Just a little bit of it. Just a little bit of it. But just as a joke, the album is called Nice Fighting You. Yeah, which is kind of perfect. It sort of says it all. We have boxing gloves on the, on boxing the front. Boxing gloves and we're boxing each other. Oh, cute. Yeah. Well, with your permission, and this is entirely up to you, if we can wrap this episode up with nice how lucky we are, we'll close this episode out with a little of the two of you not fighting, so to speak. As long as it's goodbye. And knowing this is it. We, we have, have a little something to admit. 
When the news is all bad When you're sour and blue When you start to get mad You should do what we do Tell yourself How lucky you are When the show's going wrong And the buzz is unkind When you're limping along And get kicked from behind Tell yourself How lucky you are We've been through a storm or two A bad review A few from you know who Our philosophy is simply Write something new So we're happy you're here And tonight was a thrill Cause we've shared 30 years And we're doing it still Thank you one and all For coming so far And may we say It was nice fighting you Nice hating you Nice knowing I was aggravating you Amazing but true How lucky we are How lucky, how lucky, how lucky we are This was a, a delicious dive into musical theater. You're both terrifically nice people. That may be one of your flaws, I guess. I guess. <laughs> but extremely talented, too, and thank you for all you do offer to the earth in the storytelling, in the music, and the emotion uh, that allows people to, in some ways, discover themselves. Thank you so much, Pat. This was really fun. Stroh said, he's the real deal. You yes. should talk to him. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty.